Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As we step out of lockdown and isolation and cast the athleisure wear aside, we come into a moment in fashion that celebrates colour and joy. It's time to express ourselves. It's time to be seen. So this is Style Stories Season 7, a series which continues to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a celebration of colourful and camp styles that ask bigger questions of our Australian identity. And if expressing ourselves and being seen is important, I've gotten a whole lot more visual and released a mini documentary on YouTube and Instagram that helps answer these style questions and tell the story of the colours of camp in Australia. Today, I'm chatting to Nikita Mieas, owner of Doodad and Fandango, the plastique fantastic jewel in the Australian wearable art crown. Nikita's Colt Accessories label exudes the essence of camp, with witty quips and subversive icons perfectly placed in flamboyant forms, adored by the most fanciful and fiercest of fashionistas. And while Doodad and Fandango may straddle the blurry lines between art, fashion and activism, it's Nikita's colourful sense of humour and kitsch sense of style that catches your eye and keeps you smiling. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Nikita's story. I noticed your brand, I think, probably from its inception, you, you were just saying that it's about seven, Doodad and Fandango is about seven years old, but it's hard not to notice your beautiful jewellery. It's so bright and um, expressive. Um, <laughs> so thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've, I know you've listened to a few of my podcast episodes and you've had friends kind of come and join me for, to share their style stories. So you probably know that... I do tend to do a deep dive straight into your personal history. <laughs> okay, yes, I'm aware. <laughs> um, so let's start. I know that you have kind of openly said before that you grew up in a household that didn't allow for a lot of self-expression. Um, do you want to kind of give us an idea of what that looked like for you? Yeah, well, I think uh, particularly when it came to fashion. So my, I grew up in the 70s and was a teenager of the 80s. And I guess my parents, you know, were, you know, really from a, a very different generation to the people who are sort of parents now. And so they were quite strict and uh, it was a little bit religious. And when it came to fashion, I was never allowed to have a, a choice in what I wore. And uh, that could be kind of, I found that a little bit traumatic at times, actually. <laughs> um, so as soon as I was old enough and I had the resources, um, I, uh, being able to choose my own clothes and buy my own clothes just became a really important thing to me growing up and right. just really important for my self-expression and my self-happiness because I definitely felt very um, suppressed in that way and, yeah. So that they dressed you in quite conservative clothes? Yeah, well, my mum actually... My mum is a really creative person and... Uh, but more into music okay. and craft. I never saw her wear makeup my whole life. Um, she never really took much of an interest in what she was wearing. And I definitely got the impression that she found it all really frivolous and superficial. And so even when it came to the clothes that we were 
we were told to wear, um, I don't really know if there was that much care or attention put into them. So they were probably, I mean, I think pretty ugly. <laughs> um, though I did have, my grandmother was a seamstress and uh, she used to make us a lot of clothes that we'd wear when we were little. And in retrospect, I actually think a lot of those clothes were really cute, uh, but they were super daggy for the time. Right. You know, like yeah. being in the 70s and the 80s, you know, there was a lot of awesome fashion out there. Yeah. Whereas the stuff that my grandmother was making for me to wear were like little sort of folk peasanty dresses. And that's, you know, I wanted to be in Choose Life T-shirts with neon socks and denim mini skirts. So, yeah. 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 That's so <laughs> when did you feel that kind of tension, like between, you know, you, I guess you and your mother in terms of getting dressed, when did you feel like, oh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm frustrated about this situation? Was that really early on? I think I remember a time when there was a free dress day at school and I probably was about grade, maybe grade four or five, and I turned up in the dress that I'd been put in and I remember standing outside the school crying. I didn't want to go into school in my outfit. Yeah. And uh, so I, I, that, uh, a really cute, kind young teacher saw me crying outside the school grounds and came up to talk to me and asked me what was wrong. And I was like, I hate what I'm wearing. <laughs> and uh, she was really sweet and sort of gave me the confidence to go into school wearing my outfit. So I think, um, I don't know what age that was, maybe about age 10 or so. You know, yeah. that's when your friends are starting to get into fashion and There's they were such all... such a pressure on Mufti Day, Totally, it? <laughs> it really was. And they were all wearing Kangaroochie and Cherry Lane and Sports Girl. And yeah, yeah. I'm wearing this sack-like 70s thing that my grandma made. So it was probably about, about that age yeah, then. Right. And that the trauma started to feel <laughs> real. <laughs> so... If your mum was into music and kind of other creative pursuits, did you find that you kind of lent into those things to express yourself more or...? Yeah, well, music was a big part of um, the growing up in my family. My, my dad was also really into music. There was always great music being played. Yeah, like what? Um, like my dad was into like The Who, Pink Floyd, The Beatles, Small Faces, like really cool music. Mm. So I got a great... That, that was a really... Music education. Yeah, that yeah. was awesome. My mum more folk music and classical. So, um, yeah, that was definitely something that we could be more sort of um, expressive with, I guess. And we, we all played instruments when we were growing up with the kids in the family. And Did you have a big family or...? There's four kids. So right. I'm the oldest. Okay. Uh, so I copped a lot more of those sort of strict things because right. being the oldest and actually talking to my littlest sisters they probably had a bit of a different experience to me and they probably had more freedoms, mm -hmm. but I really copped that sort of strict strictness. And yeah. how, did you, how did you react to that? Well, I really re was a bit of <laughs> rebelled. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, probably from about the age of four, 13, 14, I started to really develop a rebellious spirit. Yeah. And I really started to see the hypocrisy in, in in things and uh, especially with with um, having to you know be forced to go to church every Sunday and sit through sermons and I just found I just started to become really aware of you know the general hypocrisy of the world yeah. and um, and you know that really started to affect the way I thought about everything and yeah from about you know, when the hormones kicked in, about 13, 14, definitely became a little bit of a naughty girl. <laughs> I, I want to explore that naughty girl. 
um, but going back a step, your your um, cultural upbringing. You grew. Where did you grow up in Sydney? Were you where? No. What was where was home and what did it look like? You. I mean, obviously, you don't need to tell me like the specific suburb, but like. Was it a regional environment? What kind of environment did you grow up in? Always suburban, right. but my family did move around a lot. Okay. Uh, my family, my dad had, you know, ran into bits of trouble with sort of work, you know, employment um, when I was growing up. And so there were a few times, they didn't actually have a lot of money. They weren't, I didn't come from a very wealthy background. Yeah. And um, times were really tough a lot of the time when I was little and, um, so we did actually move around a little bit and I grew up in um, Canberra and Sydney and Lismore and then my family moved to Brisbane when I was about 13. Okay. And so that's probably where my most... Um, so I was in Brisbane from 13 till about 19. So that's probably where I sort of grew up most was Brisbane, where I was a teenager. Okay. So my really formative kind of years. Yeah. Um, but always suburban. Okay. And always uh, just really sort of bland. <laughs> You know, never inner city, cool. Yeah. Just like when we're in Sydney, we're out in the western suburbs. Yeah. You know, like when we're in Canberra, we're just on the outskirts. So in Brisbane, we're just in the burbs. Yeah. So just born and bred suburban, babe. Okay. <laughs> and the, you have quite the name, like Nikita Mayas. It's 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 like a show name, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's not one that you're going to forget easily. Um, <laughs> And in preparing for my interview, um, I did a bit of research and, and it might be a crude definition, but I understand that Mayas is Spanish for cake. It's a type wow. of cake. Did you know that? I didn't even know that. <laughs> so that's awesome. And given we're going to be talking about camp fashion later, I was like, I would think it's kind of nice that Nikita's named after a cake. Um, <laughs> um, but is, is, is Spanish your cultural background or...? My mm -hmm. dad's side is... Okay. Uh, originally Estonian, yep. and then my mum's side is German, so okay. all Eastern, Eastern um, Euro. Right. But uh, as far as like my actual, you know, the culture that I've grown up with, really pretty much totally Aussie. Yeah. My mum's side of the family is German Jewish, okay. uh, but she converted to Lutheran when she married my dad, right. so we didn't even get a Jewish culture growing right, up right. we had something that was just really Aussie we didn't right. really have a connection I don't to even, what does Lutheran is it Lutheran's is it... like a it's um it's an European um branch of just like a Church of England sort of okay. like just your straight up yeah. Christian yeah sort of thing but it was it was a bit sort of strict and dour yeah and, yeah is that, is that part of the German side coming through? Yeah, actually, that, it is. I think Lutheranism actually did start in Germany. Right. Um, but, yeah, and actually growing up, I used to think, God, I wish Mum hadn't converted. I wish we'd stayed Jewish. Yeah. Because I find, you know, the Jewish, just the traditions and the culture is, and, you know, the food stuff and all that is yeah. so much more exciting than just, like... The churches that I went to, <laughs> going oh. anyway. Yeah. It sounds like your childhood, um, like for you, Nikita, you you were you went out looking for colour and flavour. <laughs> yeah. So, as that teenage girl that broke out and rebelled, how did you start to find that in your life? Well, I feel like I can pinpoint the occasion where I knew that fashion was my salvation. Um, when I wagged school one day with my friend and she took me op shopping. 
And it was, I think, the first time I ever went op shopping. And it was in Brisbane in the 80s. And the op shops were, oh, <laughs> like, amazing. <laughs> and uh, full to the brim with, you know, then it was like you could find 50s frocks and, you know, just awesomeness. And I was like, oh, wow. Because I didn't have any money. You know, my, my family was, didn't have money. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of pocket money. I started working in shops and things from a young age, but I didn't have money to go out and buy new clothes. So to, to uh, discover op shops and that I could express and myself on a budget <laughs> and be outrageous and, you know, and just, just be so inspired by all the, the gold that was yeah. in these shops. So that was really the turning point for me, yeah. And so so you found that and then what, what did that do in terms of like um, dictating kind of moves away from home or career-wise from there? Was it, that, was it then that you kind of knew that you wanted to go into fashion? Were you thinking that you might pursue other things, you know, when you're like, oh, what am I going to do when I finish school? What would, what did that thought process look like for you? I never actually thought I would work in fashion. I think I did inherit a bit of a, uh, a just hang up or something from my mum, probably thinking that fashion was frivolous. Mm. So I never really took it seriously as a possible career. Yeah. Never even thought about it. Mm. But I really got into about the, that teenage, those teenage years when I got into op shopping and stuff, I was really into like pop culture and fascinated by subcultures. Mm -hmm. So I really started to just be obsessed with fashion magazines and music and subcultures. And actually Brisbane in the 80s was a real hotbed of amazing subculture. I mean, it probably was ev everywhere. Yeah. Like punks and skinheads and rude boys and, and goths and um, surfies and all of that stuff. And uh, so I just really like escaped into uh, exploring, you know, subcultures and stuff. <laughs> which, which boxes did you tick? Well, I was a teenage goth, <laughs> <laughs> tragically. Um, and so that was my first one. Yeah. And it was always really entwined with whatever bands I was into at that time. Yeah. Uh, so I loved goth. That was my first one. And then I got obsessed with the B-52s oh, okay. and garage it, pop it, rock, yeah, yeah. and which has obviously still stayed with me yeah. a bit today. <laughs> so then I was like doing big beehives and, you know, getting cool 60s, 70s dresses and cutting them off really short. And I was doing a lot of my own sewing then. And uh, I would actually screen print my own fabrics and and then probably... So you were just teaching yourself at home? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, well, I'd been taught to sew by my grandma who was a okay. seamstress yeah, when I was yeah. really young. So I, you know, I had my own sewing machine. So I would make my outfits for Friday, Saturday night. And, um, and then the next <laughs> subculture move was probably getting into like the gay... Um, club scene in the 80s and, and then there was all the acid house music. So then it was all like clubbing all night in um, and making like maybe smiley face outfits or yeah. so yeah. And were you still at home through this point? Actually through all that point I was still at home so a lot of that stuff was sneaking out and doing right. it. Right okay yeah. <laughs> I'm like hmm how's that going? How's your mum reacting to that then? <laughs> oh a lot of this was ha happening um, all under how, wraps. How do you sneak <laughs> out of the house with the beehive? That's what I want to Oh know. well yeah <laughs> I mean, like there's a lot of hair spray. I imagine <laughs> a lot of like hair dryer noise going on. <laughs> a lot of this stuff was done under the covers, kind yeah. of like you know, and, and getting changed on the bus. Yeah. And at a, or at a girlfriend's house, or yeah, you know. I mean, a lot of my clothes that my mum would find, um, or a couple of times, you know, she'd throw them in the bin. Right. So, 
Yeah, I just had to get sneaky at, um, yeah, hiding it. <laughs> so, you, so you said you, you, you've always um, had a certain sense of fashion confidence. Is that, is that what you mean? The kind of um, embracing those more performative uh, kind of identification points of these subcultures, is that what you mean by fashion confidence? I guess so. I don't even know why why I'm okay to walk around looking like this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there is a real Australian thing where, especially when I was growing up, you know, people would be like, oh, look at her, you know, she just loves herself, yeah. you know, and she, you know, and, and I just never thought that when I looked at other people who were fabulous. Yeah. I just thought, they're fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why, where I get that, that fashion confidence from, but yeah, I, I'm quite blinkered. I'll get dressed up in stupid things and I'm, I'm very blinkered. I don't really even, I'm not aware of who's looking at me and like my wife might be more conscious of it, but like, oh my God, people are staring at you. I'm like, oh, they, I don't even, so who knows. <laughs> <It's> happening. <laughs> um, so we, when we were getting ready for our interview or in introducing ourselves to each other, you were saying um, that you worked at Pretty Dog in Newtown. Yeah. So when did you move to Sydney and um, how did you find Pretty Dog? I want to talk about what an institution it was. It was, and you know, the Pretty Dog that you know, you, I don't know if you're aware, but the history of it goes back before it was a new shop and it was a second-hand shop that was started oh, by my old friend. Right. So I moved to Sydney um, in the early 90s mm -hmm. and it was a pretty awesome... Sydney was a pretty awesome place back then. Yeah. It's not the polished um, diamond that it is now. It was definitely more um, gritty. Um, yeah, well, I moved to the mm -hmm. Sydney in the early yeah. 90s and at that time, so I was probably... Uh, the look that, of du jour, yes. I had a punk boyfriend okay. who I moved down to Sydney with, so I was a little uh, crusty punk. Okay. And uh, which was Newtown, yeah. you know, back yeah. then. And uh, so I, that was my look and that was the vibe of the neighbourhood. Um, but I was, I was uh, you know, still into fashion and I actually started working at a clothes shop in Newtown. That was one of my first jobs when I moved here was like working in retail. And then one day I made friends with this great gay guy and called Brian, who was running an op shop on King Street. So this is 30 years ago. Okay. And okay. he was running an op shop on King Street and he was just, just, we just instantly hit it off and became fast friends. And he said, I'm going to open my own shop soon and it's going to be on um, around the corner on Brown Street and I'm going to call it Pretty Dog. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. What a great name. So he opened the, a vintage clothing shop yeah. and then uh, it, uh, he went on to open other secondhand clothes shops like Mr. Stinky yes. on Cleveland Street yeah. and Broadway Betty on Broadway. Oh, yeah. And uh, but then it after he sold Pretty Dog, it became a new clothes shop, and then I ended up working there yeah. years later. Yeah. So I had a, already had a history with that shop, but it did change flavour, but it was still awesome. Yeah. And so I kind of was a bit of a retail bitch for years on and off since then. <laughs> For 30 years. As I said to you, I begged, I begged Tanya for a job in that store. <laughs> I, I, because I was a poor student that couldn't afford anything. And, um, and you know, it was expensive but because she was getting the, the best of Australian fashion at the time. And she had international brands too, didn't she? Yeah, she did. She had a little bit of international, not much. But, a little, yeah. But, you know, like really um, 
unique pieces that you just didn't see everywhere else. Describe, can you, because obviously not everybody that's listening to this will have a reference point to Pretty Dog, I think. <laughs> um, can you describe why it was such an institution at the time? Well, it was her, it was Tanya, the owner, it was her eclectic taste and confidence. Uh, she, because I, she was so lovely, she used to let me come along to buying sessions with her. So I got to, which was so much fun to yep. go along and not actually have that pressure of like <laughs> being the one paying to buy all this stuff. Um, and she would choose the most interesting pieces from the ranges. Yeah. So uh, the shop was just full of really fabulous things and, and yeah, it wasn't, wasn't cheap, you know, so it was kind of expensive for its time. Yeah. Um, and, but it was, she was just such a great stylist and, and she had the confidence to sell it to people. So people would come in and maybe they wouldn't be the sort of person who would normally wear that crazy piece. Yeah. But she would make them feel really confident and, and give them the, the, the strength, the chutzpah to walk out and wear this thing. <laughs> so it was really, just a really fun place that people would just um, come and spend a lot of time in there. And I met lots of amazing people when I was working there. It was great. Yeah. So, so did you move from Sydney to Japan? I know that you, you kind of moved to Japan fairly early on um, in the piece. Was that, was that the move? And why, like what prompted you to go to Japan? Uh, I went to Japan when I was in the late 90s. Okay. I went there 98 to 2000. Okay. And uh, I feel I, I went there because I was a bit of a, I didn't really have a direction actually. I spent my 20s really directionless. Mm -hmm. I did go to uni for a year doing a BA, hated it, right. dropped out, moved to Sydney um, and just had sort of little jobs that I wasn't really invested in, like retail and hospitality and maybe a little bit of admin work. And I, I, um, my brother was living in Japan. Okay. And he had been there for quite a few years and he said, why don't you come to Japan? You know, you can get a working holiday visa and you would love it here. Mm. And I just was really ballsy. Yeah. And I just went on my own. Well, right. my brother was living there, but uh, I, I met another Aussie girl um, and we just got an apartment together in Tokyo and I was there for the next ten, two years and it was a huge, amazing insp um, chain, inspiration for me mm -hmm. in my life ever since. Yeah. And uh, best two years ever of my life. <laughs> and that's when I really started to take fashion seriously, actually. Okay. It, I started to, to see fashion as not such a frivolous thing because fashion is so important in Japan and people, um, you know, the way people dress, you know, Australian, especially back then, so casual and, uh, you know, maybe a bit rough and stuff and, you know, it, going to Japan was just like complete opposite, mm. where people took so much care in what they wore. Mm. And uh, I just I just was so inspired by that. And um, that's when I, I came back from Japan, I started studying fashion design. Because yeah. I thought, oh, maybe I could do something in this field. And, uh, and it gave me the confidence and the something to do it. And imagine for someone that was fascinated with subcultures, like the the Japanese subcultures are so interesting. Um, and you did you you connected with the Harajuku girls that were that would have been very uh, like um, it would have been a poignant time for that subculture, right? It was um, the peak of that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what? 
what happens to this girl from the burbs who's kind of trying to figure some stuff out when they find a, a something that's so visually stimulating like that? What 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 did that what did that mean to you? Oh my god, it was like amazing <laughs> because also when you go to a, a different country where you don't know anyone, you reinvent yourself. hundred percent. Yeah. And so I just everything changed. I became um, I became gay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously it had always been in me, but yeah. I, um, so that was, I got a girl, Japanese girlfriend. Right. So I felt like I could live that life that I, you know, maybe had been suppressing here. Had you even thought about it when, when you were Yeah, in I actually had had a girlfriend when I was younger, but I de okay. never really um, identified sort of that way. Yes. Um, and, uh, and then I started getting into the gay clubbing scene in Tokyo and I started um, performing at the clubs. And What were you performing? I was just like a crazy club, queer club performer. So doing, you know, lip syncing stuff to songs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a job at a club uh, that was on once a month where I was the... Um, candy floss girl yeah. and I um, would turn up and I'd turn on the candy floss machine and I'd do cotton candy and I'd just walk around and give it to all the girls yeah. in a bikini or whatever I was wearing. <laughs> oh God, I was so hot back then. <laughs> um, just really immersed in the club scene. Yeah, right. And um, I got, I mean, I was, this is 20 something years, just over 20 years ago. So I was cute, young, uh, Westerner and I had opportunities chucked at me. Yeah. Do you want to be in a video clip for this really cool band? Do you want to be in a video game? Do you want to be in walking as a model in Tokyo collections? Like stuff that would never ever happen here in a million yeah. years because I'm five foot four and I'm <laughs> not a stunningly beautiful model or anything. But because you of who I, you know, what I look like and I was different back then it was just like opportunities just chucked at me. So yeah. It was just incredible. So why did you leave after two years? Because I then I was in my late 20s right. and I did something finally popped in my brain where I was like, oh, I, maybe it's time to grow up. Yeah. You know, my Japanese wasn't fluent. Yeah. So I knew that if I stayed there, I wouldn't be able to sort of start doing the jobs that I would want to do because mm -hmm. of my um, Japanese ability. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time to go home and actually start thinking about what I'm going to do with my future. And I just knew it was going to be really hard. If I stayed in Japan, I'd just keep on having fun. And I definitely had lots of friends who I saw kind of stuck in that sort of mentality yeah. who had gone there young and were just like partying and, and not really doing anything more than just being in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew, but I knew it was all fantasy. You know, I knew that I really wasn't a supermodel, you know? <laughs> um, so I knew that I had to come, I, to, to start in really thinking about what I wanted to do for my career, I really should come home. So that's why I left and I, I studied, I came back and I started working for a Japanese production company. So working in TV commercials, but okay. on the production end right. and studying fashion design. And, and then I moved into doing wardrobe on TV commercials. So that's how that sort of all so happened. you always kind of um, touched on this performative edge of fashion, like never, uh, only by uh, submission were you ever kind of in a mainstream. Even, I, I don't even feel like what your mother dressed you in was particularly 
mainstream. It was because yeah. it, it, it was crafty and it was artisan and it was folky, you know. Like you, I know. You just, <laughs> looking back now, I think, oh my god, that was actually so adorable, and I was way cooler than everybody else. You, you kind of had a subculture of your own right there. <laughs> but you know, you're just so like wanting to fit in at that age, you know, as, as a young teen. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but you're right. Always, always that performance somehow. I don't know why, but yeah, always on that edge. Never yeah. just, never just wanting to be following the trends. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, the, the like the slant that you took career-wise in fashion, you you're in the the most you know being doing TV wardrobe. You, it has to be louder and more expressive than you know styling for a, a photo shoot or a TV commercial, let's say. Um, but uh, you did a few stints, right? You in terms of moving through the fashion industry, you. you um, took your hand at fashion design and shoe design, is that right? Well, yeah. I studied all those things. Right, okay. Because I am really am a real crafty. I mean, I get from my mum, I'm super crafty, so right. I always enjoy actually making things. Yeah. And uh, so I did, throughout, like, the 2000s, I did a lot of creative cra um, courses at TAFE. So I did East Sydney fashion design. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, you know, it was weird. Like, I always knew that I wasn't... Fashion wasn't really quite the right fit. Like when I actually learned how to do make fashion properly with pattern making properly, mm. uh, I didn't really get into it. Yeah. So I try. I studied shoe design, and I love shoe design. But you, it's very um, hard to do because you actually need a lot of big equipment and stuff. Mm. Um, so I thought, oh, that's just too hard. And uh, I, it was when I heard about the this jewellery design course, then everything just went, <laughs> maybe this is it, you yeah, know? Yeah. And so I actually left working in TVCs in my late, no, sorry, my early, no, no, mid, <laughs> mid yeah. I was 35, and I left um, being like a wardrobe person, production person in ads, and I went full-time to doing this jewellery and design course, and that's when everything, everything I'd e ever done, it all came together, like yeah. all the performance, Stuff and all the fashion stuff and all the making stuff came together in the jewellery design. And how long after that did you start Doodad and Fandango? Probably from when I first started studying, it probably took about seven years and that was, that was a hard time. Mm. There was, the study part of it was pure joy. We're studying, I encourage anyone who's creative um, who maybe doesn't really know what they want to do, to go study something like that. Be immersed in learning a craft with masters uh, for three or four years or whatever because uh, I just learnt so much and it was such a joy to be every day being challenged and, and pushed to, to in this, this field. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but then when I finished the study... It was like, holy crap, what do I do now? Because mm -hmm. there is no jewellery design industry. Yeah. When you finish fashion design, you can go do an internship, you can get a job as a shit kicker in a you know, fashion house or whatever, and you can work your way up to become a fashion designer. Yeah. Or you can have your own label, and it's a lot more clear-cut sort of the steps on how to do that. But after I finished this very creative, very conceptual jewellery design course, which was basically training us to be artists, mm. I really struggled because I just didn't know where to go. And I knew that I didn't want to actually be a conceptual 
a contemporary jeweller because that's a very small world and I didn't fit in. I knew I didn't fit in. <laughs> Everything I was always doing was sort of too kitsch. Yes. You know, yeah. like I tried really hard to be this conceptual artist at school and, you know, sometimes I'd really nail it. Yeah. But I knew it wasn't really me. Yeah. So um, it took me probably about four or five years after graduating jewellery trying all kinds of things again, you know, okay. to really... I, I, I had been trained as a silversmith, as a serious silversmith. So I thought I'm going to be a, like a real jeweller and, and it just was too hard, mm -hmm. you know, it was so expensive, so much time cons is spent on making these pieces mm -hmm. and it's like how do you sell them? And it was pr just pre-Instagram as well, so it was right. really hard. And then um, so it was a bit of trial and error, trying all different kinds of things before I landed on the acrylics right. and the laser cut stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I threw away all this I can't imagine stuff. your style, um, silver being, you know, like the right meat. You know, I just, I don't know how you express yourself in a, something that's um, visually so one note, you know? Uh, is that yeah. what you were struggling with? Yeah, it definitely was because also the sort of things that I really did love doing were in the metal were, were big, um, not always very wearable, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly the right fit for me. Yeah. But I did I did enjoy the craft of it. Yeah. Like but I there loved was no it. Colour. No There's colour. no colour. It's really hard to get colour into metal. Yeah. Um, and you know you can with gemstones, but it's all very expensive and it's very um it's very serious and expensive. Yeah. yeah. I'm imagining that you didn't get taught how to do that at at university or through your courses. Um, but you're now known for your kind of entrepreneurship, uh, you know, and um, yeah, your entrepreneurial spirit in your brand. How did you, how did you learn all of that, and how fast was the learning curve? Oh man, I'm just, yeah, you're so right. Like you're so unprepared when you leave a course like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, you just have to learn along the way. I. Um, and I guess I'm just a natural born hustler, you know? <laughs> and uh, I really had to find the confidence in yep. myself to be a bit shameless and just put myself out there. But everything's been a gradual learning on the learning as I go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, social media has been an amazing tool mm. to build and to advertise. And so... I feel like when I was starting, it was a really golden time moment when I was just starting out. It was when Instagram was just starting, so there was no algorithm, mm. and it was just this beautiful thing where you could just you could organically grow really quickly. Yeah. And so um, I just like the business stuff just sort of went along with, yeah, with, with how how the brand recognition was going and it was just, yeah, all just learnt as I went. Yeah. And look, I don't think I'm a good business person in many ways because <laughs> the way I've actually chosen to operate my business is kind of crazy. Like, I make everything myself. Yeah. Like, how dumb is that? <laughs> <laughs> and that comes from, you know, probably the way I was taught to make jewellery and being a crafty person and, you know, having, like, ethics about, oh, I don't want to get stuff made offshore where I don't know how it's being made. Um, so if I was a good p business person, mm. I wouldn't... I'd be... My business would probably be a lot more successful and bigger and yes. I wouldn't be making everything myself and yeah. have so much time tied up in that. So, yeah, just learn it as I've gone and trial <laughs> and error. <laughs> Many errors, yeah. Um, but you do, there's, there's a commercialism to, 
to your products um, and obviously like you know they have a bright um, accessible happy feel to them uh, and I think you know when I look at your product and think about you know who you are and the way that you do things um, I do want to put you in that same category as the Jenny Keys and the Ken Dones and Lisa Gormans like those Australian designers who have been able to commercialise their art and make it accessible to um, to everybody, you know, it, it doesn't have to be at such a high price point that people can't have access to it. Um, how do you feel about putting being put in the same category as well, people like that? I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're my fashion idols. Yeah. To yeah. be thought of in in a similar way to those guys is just, I mean, thank you. That yeah. really takes my breath away. <laughs> um, you know, and, and some of those people have been able to uh, take their craft sort of moment and 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 be smarter about and commercialise it and, and mass produce it. Yeah. Um, though having read Jenny Key's autobiography, mm -hmm. um, so from what I can understand, she had a really great um, business and then had investors come in yeah. at some point later yeah. on um, and who took it bigger and commercialise it more and that's when her business actually ran into a bit of trouble. Yeah. So I'm really like at this point now where I'm like, what do I do? Do I keep it this small crafty thing where I'm only able to produce as much as I can? You know, I, I have got it at this sweet price. It's not cheap but it's not expensive. Yep. Um, or do I get investors in and then become more of a, like, I don't know, more of a gorman or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah I don't know. But Do you think, I'm going to try and get these words right, you straddle the blurry lines between fashion, art and activism. What does that mean to you? Yes, I think I do. And I think, um, so, you know, the fact that, I am so small and hands-on means that I can be really reactive and I can be quite an activist in what I do. Mm. And uh, so if there's a, a, an issue that pops up, I can, um, you know, my personal philosophies with uh, like being an activist, which I think is, is great as an artist, as a person who's got any kind of profile, uh, why not use what you have to push out your beliefs and be an activist. So, and yeah. being a small business, making things myself, I can just, I can do that. So I can be a real activist. I can make um, a COVID range yes. and have it out on my website in a couple of weeks and be really active and be, I, yeah. I loved your Kerry chant earrings. Oh, they were great. <laughs> so they were a collab with a Sydney artist, Beck Finer. Right. So, yeah, and I, and yeah, my practice is all about you know, all, yeah, art, craft, fashion and activism. Yeah, I love being able to be all of those things. And then once you become a bigger business, you can't be all those things. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know, not, not as quickly and not as authentically maybe because you're looking further down, you well, know, six months ahead. And you're also governed by different rules, right? So totally. You, yeah, you, you can't off... I guess operate off the pure art base of your work. You have to operate off a different platform of politics and finances. Um. Oh my God. Yeah, well, that's right. So I'm just committed to keep trying. Oh, well, Nikita, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to interview you.
and share your style story. Thank you. I've had such a ball. Thank you so much. Thank you. Whilst Nikita's strict upbringing in Australian suburbia offered her little spectrum to express herself, it was the colour of camp comedians, cartoon-like characters and vintage fashion that helped her discover the most fabulous expression of herself. Whether it be retro references, nostalgic nods or modern day motives, Nikita is constantly using herself and her work as a canvas for expression, acceptance and joy. And while activism is a critical component to her season story, it's her quirky sense of humour and eye-catching charisma that define her style.